What we've long imagined would come is coming. The Ohio lawmakers are talking about getting rid of any requirements for a concealed carry permit for people to carry concealed guns. We could have guns everywhere. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues, Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. It's Thursday, and can you believe it's already 18 days since Halloween? <laughs> Doesn't that rock your world? I mean, I, I'm prepping for Christmas, so I, I'm there. <laughs> it just seems like it was yesterday, and it's 18 days later. So yeah, It feels like there are a lot of Christmas lights out pretty early this year. There are. I mean, doesn't it? I agree with that. Don't we usually put that out after Thanksgiving? Hmm. Yeah. I think so, but I think the pandemic has messed with all of our sense of time. And, you know, they went straight from Halloween decorations to Christmas decorations, which, <laughs> sure, why not? It seems strange, but okay. Let's begin. Are Ohio legislators likely to abolish the requirements for any kind of permit for people to carry concealed firearms in the state? Layla, this seemed like it was inevitable. The erosion after erosion of the restrictions that we have to try and compel responsible gun ownership. But it's now on the table. And with this legislature, is it likely? Yeah, I mean, it, it passed resoundingly in the House. The House this week passed House Bill 227 and House Bill 99, both of which seek to roll back gun control laws. And now they're headed to the Senate. And yes, House Bill 227 would allow anyone age 21 or older to carry a concealed firearm unless they're otherwise prohibited from possessing a gun by state or federal law. Ohio would become the 22nd state to allow concealed carry in public without a license. And under this this piece, motorists also would no longer be required to inform law enforcement if they're carrying a gun unless they're asked. Right now, if you fail to do that, it's a first degree misdemeanor, and that could lead to jail time, fines or suspension of your concealed carry permit. So the bill's sponsor, Republican State Representative Tom Brinkman, says he had been trying for decades to bring what he calls constitutional carry to Ohio. Other Republicans said they didn't think that this would stop many gun owners from seeking the gun training that has long come with the concealed carry license because that they would they would want their license to be recognized in other states. And I guess that's how you would go about doing that is to get the full spectrum of training. But Democrats say this is a dangerous and deadly prospect. Arming citizens who aren't properly trained to handle these weapons is an awful idea. And then there's House Bill 99, which we discussed last week, and that's the one that would drastically reduce the number of training hours teachers would need to carry a gun in school. And yeah, just another let, awful idea that I hope districts yeah, can we, Let's leave that against. one off. Let, let, let's talk about the first one, and I'm going to play the role of the wounded elk with a pack of wolves circling me. But one could make the argument, and I have, that when you have a constitutional amendment that says the right of the people to bear arms should not be abridged, means you really can't make them have a permit to carry a gun. I know Ted Dieden is, is going to surprisingly feels very strongly in the opposite way. It's a weird thing to be on the more conservative side of an argument with Ted Dieden. But, but I'm, a, I'm a staunch defender of the First Amendment. And my feeling is if we don't defend them all, then they're all able to be whittled away and you can make the argument that the permit requirement is unconstitutional and that that's why they call this constitutional carry go ahead lay it on me 
Well, I mean, what about the the well organized militia component of of uh, of it? I mean, isn't that isn't that part of the argument against f- what you're calling constitutional carry? I mean, yeah, we, this isn't the Wild I, West, right? I mean, but but it is. I mean, the the constant <laughs> the, the the Bill of Rights was passed back when the Wild West was going. Look, you, there, there's lots of argument about it. There's people that say that that means you can only have weapons to be in a militia, but that's not what it says. It says the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be abridged, and that clause is a predicate. I know there's huge disagreement on this, but the Supreme Court has steadily backed this up. They have a gun case now that they're going to make a ruling on in New York where I wouldn't be surprised if they loosen things up more. And it's a state's rights issue. And if the state says you don't have to do it, it is preposterous, the argument that people will go and get the training anyway. That's just nonsense. They're not going to get the training if they don't have to. They're going to buy a gun. And if they're out walking their dog and they feel unsafe, they're going to carry a gun. And it is it is an unusual thing to think about five people meeting up on the street and all of them have guns in their in their belt and, and how quickly that can escalate into danger. But if you want to limit that, I think you have to change the Constitution. Laura, Lisa, you don't want to weigh in on this? I, I do, actually. I, I think there's a racial component here. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a well-watched YouTube video of a man with, an, and this is an AR-15, walk, a white man walking down the street not getting challenged. A black man walking down the street with an AR-15 immediately gets challenged and thrown to the ground. Now, this is concealed carry. I, I had a CHL in Texas, and they said you have to take pain when you're concealed carry not to show that gun not by mistake not intentionally i'm just afraid that if a black man walks into a store and unintentionally shows his gun that he's going to get in trouble i i just feel that you know there's a racial component here that we're not uh, that's not being considered no clearly this is a racial component our colleague chris ronowski has raised the idea that because of the number of black people that have been charged with some kind of crime that precludes them from carrying guns it'll create a very warped situation but you know in but lisa in ohio you're allowed now to carry openly without any kind of permit so the idea that the gun would become visible there's nothing wrong with that you're allowed to openly carry weapons you're just not allowed without the permit right now to have the concealed weapon. Look, it creates a Wild West kind of situation, but if America wants to fix that, the the Constitution is where you need to go. Can I point out something following up with Lisa is, you know, she said this, there's a racial component. And every time we have a police shooting, it's like, was there a gun? Did the suspect have a gun? Like, if if people are allowed to carry guns, why is that part of the question? And it just... That was actually exactly the point that Samaria Rice made about her son's killing, was that the police rolled up on him, believing he had a gun. They also believed he was a grown man Mm. holding a gun, (laughs) and they just gunned him down. And her point was, if this is an open carry state, why did you not investigate what exactly was going on in this park you just assumed that he had no right to have the gun because he was Mm -hmm. a a black man with with a firearm and yeah exactly right laura that's right and they should have been charged because they violated the law and hopefully 
his mom will be successful in getting the Justice Department to reopen that case. Laura? I was just going to say, the proliferation of guns scares me. I mean, I know you can have one to defend yourself. It's not something I ever want in my house because you look at the, the number of accidents with kids and guns. And just the more guns there are, the more shootings there's going to be. I, I think that's pretty basic math. There are people on the far right that say the proliferation of free speech scares them, but it's protected <laughs> by the First Amendment. I, I keep falling but my back. my free speech can't kill someone. But but it's the Constitution. I, I keep falling back to that. And I know there are conservatives that disagree with that, that think you should still have the training. I just don't see how you Wait, can do that. But the, the phrasing of the Constitution is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. How do you how do you reconcile the first part of that with the second? If if your reading of it is, an, you know, just all out right to bear arms. I read it as the predicate, but the statement, the declaratory statement is the right of the people shall not be abridged. Look, we're going to disagree on this. I've disagreed with you previously. We're heading in that direction. We're heading into a direction where everybody's got a gun. And I agree with you. That's frightening because when tempers flare, people start shooting. And the other problem is because they've passed laws that say if you're afraid anywhere, anytime, you can gun somebody down. Mm -hmm. Prosecutors are having one hell of a time now. Every time there's a shooting, did the shooter have a reasonable fear? It's the Kyle Rittenhouse case. It's, I mean, it's, this is going to happen with every shooting. And all you've got to do is convince the prosecutor of the jury, I thought I was in danger. Well, if you're talking to four people with guns and they're yelling at you, can you argue, I thought they were going to shoot me, they were being aggressive and right. gun them down? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, we've, we've made the laws about using guns much more dangerous by doing things like that. Because and and talk to any prosecutor, it's already wreaking havoc. There's going to be you know, a lot of injustice can I, because. Can of I it. also ask why would they eliminate the the requirement that you have to notify a police officer if you've been pulled over that you have to notify them that there's a gun in your car? I I thought this is the party of you know back the blue and you know how why would you make cops less safe on the job? I mean, th- th- there's nothing wrong with notifying a police officer that there's a that you have a firearm in your vehicle. I think they're going on the philosophy that that abridges the right. We're going to have to leave it there. We got to move on. You are listening to today in Ohio. The Ohio lawmaker looking to give three hundred million dollars to Ohio nursing homes explained why she does not want to attach requirements or accountability to how it is spent. Lisa. What does she say before we rip it apart for being the ridiculous argument it is? Well, it's it's a pretty big cop out, Chris. Uh, Republican Sarah Carruthers, who is from Cincinnati, she said that there she is not here to tell nursing homes what to do and that they know their issues better than than she does or the legislature does which is a huge cop out come on it's basically just following the blank check you know uh narrative so yeah and somebody is i guess a reporter brought up to her well how is this isn't this kind of like house bill six the first energy bailout you know where basically you you just you know let them do their thing and she's like eh, 
I don't see that at all. But there are, you know, there are Democrats questioning this. Jessica Miranda of Cincinnati says, well, then how do we hold nursing homes accountable? How do we ensure that the homes that were most impacted by COVID get the money that they need and that this money doesn't just flow to the wealthier, more high quality nursing homes that probably had less of a COVID problem? So, yeah, it's 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 just a huge cop out. It's shameless. And, and it's the, the comparison to the first energy thing is very apt. We learned in the aftermath of that scandal that legislators never asked first energy to account for why they needed that bailout. They never said, please show us your books. First energy said, that's confidential information. And then they gave them the money anyway. It's exactly the same. We're just going to give them $300 million and let them spend it any way they want. It's not going to go to the patients. It's not going to go to the employees. It's going to enrich the owner's pockets. It's re- it's a ridiculous proposal. It's an abuse of the spending of taxpayer money. And you, you got to figure the nursing home lobby is in her ear, if not in her campaign finance account. It's a good follow-up story, and I'm glad people are asking questions about it. Check out the story on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Now that fireworks will be legal in Ohio on a bunch of holidays, are we about to see an onslaught of city councils working to ban them within their borders, and who might be the first to do so? Laura, we're talking, and Norman, our Sun editor, will be very excited because we're talking about a story from the Sun newspapers. Absolutely, and they are the ones that that cover these communities very carefully and go to all the meetings. So hats off to them. But uh, we're talking about University Heights, where I lived for nine years. And the safety committee there unanimously voted no thanks for the fireworks freedoms that would allow uh, all sorts of holidays to be celebrated with fireworks in Ohio. And that's New Year's Eve and day, Cinco de Mayo, Juneteenth, Memorial Day, Labor Day, the weekends around July 4th, plus Chinese New Year and Diwali. And so... Basically, they're saying our lots are too small for this to be safe, and we don't have the ability to regulate if people are storing them unsafely in basements or garages. We're afraid there's going to be a fire problem. So, I, I mean, he's they're right. It, it is a small community, and they don't have big yards, and I wonder how many other communities are going to use the same logic. You don't think they're being a little draconian in stopping people from having some fun? I, I really, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if people come to the next city council meeting on Tuesday and voice their opinion. I, I, I totally see their point of view. And I personally would never want the responsibility of setting off fireworks just like I don't own a gun. Like, it's just too dangerous to me. But there are probably people that want to do it. They've actually gotten a bunch of fireworks complaints in recent years, 20 in 2017, 24 in 2019, 58 in 2020, and 54 so far this year. So that's quite a ramp up in people complaining about fireworks. Yeah, I'm I'm just a little bit surprised that they don't provide a vent. Like, okay, we don't want all these holidays to have fireworks, but like Halloween, we'll set two hours on July 4th night from 10 o'clock to, to midnight or 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock where people could do certain kinds of things because it provides a vent. They're just slamming the door. And you know what happens. I mean, I mean people light fireworks now. Well, that's what I was just thinking. Look at all of these complaints they've had. And that it's been illegal. So they're probably just going to keep doing it. And now are they going to ramp up their enforcement because they've taken a stand? I don't know. I don't know. I do. Look, anybody who owns a kind of a wary dog knows that this causes a lot of anxiety in, in dogs. And 
that's suffering and the owners suffer with the dog. So I get it in this close knit community. I just, I wonder if it's the all or nothing approach is best, but I do think we're going to see a bunch of communities doing this. Well, they want to reach out to neighboring communities like Cleveland Heights or Shaker Heights. I mean, their point is they have like five communities within a mile of them, right? I mean, those are small cities. And so they want them all to kind of communicate on this issue. Well, Cleveland Heights is about to have its first ever mayor. Do you think one of his first actions will be to take away fun? <laughs> well, that would be council, <laughs> not the mayor. You know, I, I wouldn't be, you know, I hate amateur fireworks, but I, I wouldn't be opposed to this if they would just limit it to the 4th of July period, because it's like, it seems like several days before and after 4th of July, you're hearing these things go off all around you. And I just hate it. I've got little kids who go to sleep early. I don't need this in my life. <laughs> but I never hear of anyone being charged with fire, illegal fireworks. I, you know, I read the, the Sun Messenger and all the police bought her. I never see anybody charged for shooting off fireworks, which are currently illegal. So, uh, Yeah, I think what police do is they show up and they say, if they find the people doing it, they say, you can't do that. Cut it out. Your neighbors are complaining. I mean, there, there are times when... And, and this is much more prevalent in years past where police go out to keep the peace. And it's not just loading the courts up with with kind of silly cases. And so if police get complaints. They show up in a neighborhood. The, the, the little kids with the firecrackers scatter and they tell parents, hey, it's causing a problem. That's I, I, I don't have a problem with with not loading up the courts with it. I just it's interesting that. They're, they're just going to lock it down because if if you tried to corral it, like Layla says, and even put hours on it, maybe people would respect that. It would be interesting if at least one community tries that to see if it's successful. It probably won't be. It's, you know, it's like prohibition. People drank, you know, trying to prohibit fireworks. You're going to have fireworks on July 4th. <laughs> you're listening to Today in Ohio. What is driving the very recent serious pushback? We are seeing on Cleveland City Council regarding Mayor Frank Jackson's proposal for spending the city's American Rescue Plan windfall. Layla, we've talked about what they haven't been doing for months and months, and all of a sudden, they're on fire pushing back. Yeah, because we're in the the 11th hour of this thing. It very well could be passed on Monday. So in the past couple months, council has been holding its own special working group sessions to set their priorities on spending this enormous pot of money. It's the first half of a half billion dollars in federal stimulus funds. But meanwhile, you know, Mayor Jackson's big proposal to earmark $121 million of it has been working its way through the committees. And this week, it came before council's Development Planning and Sustainability Committee. It had previously been in the Public Safety Committee. As soon as Monday, it could end up before the Finance Committee, and that's pretty much the last stop before council passes it. One of the things that really rubbed council members the wrong way at the committee table this week was that the administration's presentation included a map of Cleveland with areas designated as core development areas, strategic corridors, middle neighborhoods, and this like neighborhood transformation initiative. These are the areas of focus for revitalization programs, including lending and grant programs. Okay, cool. But some of the areas on both sides of the city weren't color-coded at all, and that indicates that they wouldn't be eligible for that very important funding in this pandemic you know, era. And Councilman Charles Slife especially took exception to that because of his, you know, in his ward, Cam's Corners wasn't included, for example. And he said, 
Did COVID affect people or did it affect buildings? What I'm seeing here is that in a substantial portion of the city, families who've been affected by COVID or are looking for services are being written out of even the ability to participate in these programs. And he pointed out all of the distressed neighborhoods, including Huff and parts of the southeast side that wouldn't be prioritized for home repair loans under this plan. And the administration just sort of was like, well, you know, we had to start somewhere and it led to this very heated moment between Slife and City Chief of Staff and Finance Director Sharon Dumas. Slife said, you know, maybe if Mayor Jackson came to Ward 17 more than once a year on the 4th of July parade, he'd have a more nuanced approach of the neighborhood. <laughs> and Dumas wasn't having it. She, you know, she said, you know, that she wouldn't accept that kind of treatment at the committee table. And then Councilman Tony Brancatelli, who was chairing the committee, told Slife to be respectful. And Slife said... I could be far more disrespectful. And then Duma said, so can we. Zing. All right. right. So so stop there a second, because the the thing that struck me about this is five weeks from Saturday, the Frank Jackson administration, the 16 years of it comes to an end. Right. So so clearly the next council, the next mayor, Justin Bibb, will be spending this money. Why fight this hard now? Why not make this part of the transition. Why not sit down with Justin Bibb and incoming council president Blaine Griffin and say, look, here are the reasons we wanted to spend it this way. You know, so here it is. Take it. You guys talk. You figure it out. This is what we're leaving you with. But it's your job now. So we're we're just going to give you what we have, give you the transition documents, carry it forward. Best of luck to you. Our time is over to sit at the table and be snippy and and confrontational when you're going to be done in five weeks? It just doesn't make sense to me. I don't really get it either. I mean, it just seems that this enormous windfall has been the subject of this enormous power struggle between the administration. And, you know, it's kind of started off in the pre-election days when it looked like this was, uh, you know, this could this is a political issue that that council members who were running for re-election could show their power at the committee table. But we're past that now, and we're headed, like you said, into this into the transition phase. And um, I, I just I don't understand it either. You know, there were look, other look, yeah. Go ahead. The, the credits are rolling. The music is <laughs> rising with the swell. The sixteen years are coming it. to an end. I just it's it's silly because. The next, I mean, you have to let go. They've had 16 years. They've got lots that they've gotten done. They can be proud of a lot. But the next one is coming in. So work with them. You know, give them your explanations. Show why you want it. But to sit at the table and, and, and be nasty with the councilman, and I, I, I just don't, I don't get the fight. It's almost like they can't let go. And guess what? It's five weeks from Saturday, whether they want to or not. They're done. I know. I know. And I wonder if maybe Sharon Dumas just lost her cool for a minute, you know, d- doesn't like to be spoken to that way. I mean, I um, she you know, she she has a, an edge sometimes, you know, uh, but you're right. <laughs> I don't get it either. I don't. I, with five weeks to go, I think they should just table this whole thing and let the next the next crew do it because because no matter what they do now can be undone in January anyway. They're not going to spend oh, yeah. this money in the next five weeks. So work with that. Be be collegial, be collaborative and and hand over the baton with some grace. But honestly, you're listening. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I fully expect that this is going to be passed on Monday. That's how the city rolls. I mean, they're, they're, I know it's ramping but, up. 
they have this week to basically come to grips with what what it says and they're they're spending these days until monday contributing all the council members are contributing their ideas for amending it but i i I expect it's going to pass it might pass but all that does is allocate the money it'll be the next mayor's job to spend that money and if he doesn't agree with it he won't spend it and 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 who knows blaine griffin may have different ideas than than what is coming out now about spending money. He's one of the chief voices for breaking this into multiple pieces so that it's not one omnibus bill. I, I just let the next let the next crew have it. I mean, you know, at some point, everybody departs the stage and you wish the people that follow you in well. That's the definition of grace. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Greater Regional Transit, Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority lost a lot of ridership during the pandemic. How is it doing financially? Lisa, they gave a pretty good report and things aren't that bad. Yeah, it actually looks good. They they got a huge injection of federal cash, $203 million from two different COVID relief funds. And they also saw an increase in their collections of sales and use taxes. So they were able to make some big inroads. They were able to erase $60 million in debt this year. That will save them $126 million through 2030 in interest payments that they would have had to pay. They were able to buy 20 new buses. Uh, This is all coming into their, uh, they're going to start deliberating their 2021-2022 budget, which is over $424 million. And they're going to start having hearings on December 7th on that. And some of their plans for this money, they're talking about $24 million in rail car replacements, $85 million that goes into a new revenue stabilization fund that helps offset offset fare declines through 2026. And they're looking at, on their wish list, they're looking at reopening the waterfront line and improving rail service on the east side. Now, this is all despite quite a precipitous decline in ridership. Of course, a lot of it is pandemic reduced. Through November of this year, ridership is down 14.5% from 2020, but it's down 52% from 2019 pre-pandemic. Fares make up about 15% of RTA's overall revenue. They're planning for a very conservative ridership increase next year, only about 1%. And they've got a holiday promo coming up and through December 23rd. It's on Instagram, and apparently they ask questions on Instagram. If you answer them, you can get free gift cards, free fare cards, other prizes. So this is an incentive. But yeah, things are looking rosy for RTA for once. I, I'm still looking forward to when Justin Bibb becomes Cleveland mayor, whether he introduces formally a conversation about making it free. That's a radical idea that he had been behind in in his other endeavors in Cleveland. He gets to appoint people to that board. I know they're not talking about it now, but it will be interesting if he can launch that conversation, talk about a radical idea. Got to move on. It's today in Ohio. How hard is the recent inflationary spiral in food costs hitting the greater Cleveland Food Bank as it heads into the holidays? Laura, the food bank is one of our favorite institutions, an absolute positive, an absolute good for the community, and they're having some difficult days. Yeah, absolutely. Everything costs more. The food that the food bank is buying, the packaging it puts the items in, the freight costs to move it, they're all going up. Think about the cost of turkeys alone. It's Thanksgiving, and they're up 25% since before the pandemic to $12.79 per turkey. And that was with pre-ordering in April to lock in cheap prices. So it's not like they're not planning ahead. 
but the price of everything is going up. A pound of food costs 79 cents on average now. That's up from 67 cents. So peanut butter to corn mix, it's all up. And their budget is $37 million for the year ahead for their fiscal year. That's up from $24 million in fiscal 2019. And that's a lot because of the price crisis increases as well as the fact that they're serving a lot more people. 400,000 people were served in fiscal 2020. That's up from 300,000 the year before. Thankfully, need is down a little bit this year, 343,000 served. But but I mean, it's the pandemic. That's why prices are rising and that's why people need help. Yeah, I was surprised in the story at how early they order turkeys for Thanksgiving. That that I mean, that's that's you really have to know what you're doing way ahead of time. <laughs> right. Right. And the good thing is that Northeast Ohio has been incredibly generous. So it, it doesn't sound like they, I mean, they've been asking for money, you know, since the pandemic started and a lot of people have stepped up for that need. So they're not feeling super squeezed now. They think they'll be able to provide for it. Well, the period between Thanksgiving and Christmas is when people open up their checkbooks for most of the charitable giving. So maybe they'll hear this and open them up a little wider. It's today in Ohio. Will the people at BioEnterprise be charged with a crime for the double billing they did with Cuyahoga County now that they have settled up and paid back the extra money they collected? Layla, what strikes me about this is how defensive they were when the county caught them. Mm -hmm. The county came out and announced all this, and they were (laughs) shocked, shocked to be accused of such duplicity. And guess what? They're guilty as can be. That's right. It's unclear, though, whether this is going to result in any criminal charges. So BioEnterprise, this is the nonprofit that was once hired to promote the Cuyahoga County-owned Global Center for Health Innovation, the MedBart. They they repaid the Convention Facilities Development Corporation $127,000 as part of a lawsuit settlement over double billing and all of these questionable charges. They also had to forfeit over $515,000 in unpaid services. And this stems from... A two-year battle over these disputed charges that were brought to light by Executive Director of the Convention Facilities Development Corporation, George Hilo, in 2019. In a memo to the board back then, he called for an audit after he discovered reimbursements in excess of what the nonprofit spent and other disallowed charges, including trips and my favorite a $295 liquor store bill to celebrate March Madness happy hour I mean I don't know how you could be shocked that you were caught (laughs) but if you put that on your expense report but you know an independent audit later found bioenterprise had billed state and county taxpayers uh, for the same expenses, totaling about $118,000, and they those expenses related to employee wages and benefits, professional services, website design, along with services from a Cleveland public relations firm and a video production company. So when all this came to light, BioEnterprise was two years into a contract to oversee the marketing, promotion, and tenants at, at the, the struggling MedMart. Uh, occupancy plummeted, obviously, uh, during that time. The Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office said this week that um, it has referred the case to the Ohio Attorney General's Office for review. Uh, We reached out to the office for comment, but we don't know uh, what what direction they'll go with it. The attorney representing the Convention Facilities Development Corporation, Jeff Applebaum, told us that the, the agency just wants to make sure the taxpayer is whole. That's what they care most about. They wouldn't comment on on what well, direction they had with, uh, you know, what, what's sad about what's sad about this is that Armin Budish 
had had done the due diligence to try and fix this situation. And BioEnterprise had a great reputation. And then, so I remember when they, they came in to talk about this, this was like a big moment to finally turn that place around with a quality, a quality agency to run it. And the fact that they just like soaked the money out of it instead of doing what they were hired to, it's a shame because the the county had done the right thing. And, you know, we criticized the county for its many, many instances of screwing up, but they caught them. I mean, they did catch them and they did hold them to account and protect the taxpayers' money. Shame on BioEnterprise. They were sleazy in this deal and salute to the county for getting it done. It's today in Ohio. Wow. Good conversation today. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. We got one more day to discuss news and then it's Thanksgiving week. Thank you for listening to this podcast.